Well, just like that, March 2020. March 2020. That is insanity. That is absolute insanity. And Punxsutawney, he was right. Punxsutawney Phil, good guy. Great guy, in fact. Cute. Very cute. Very cute guy. Do you know who Punxsutawney Phil is? If you don't know who Punxsutawney Phil is, then you don't need to listen to this right now because there are much more pressing things that you need to learn about yourself and learn about the existence of things on the planet Earth than to listen to this. We'll teach you about stars and we'll teach you about exoplanets some other time. Go learn about Punxsutawney Phil. With that being said, welcome to episode 71, The State of the Universe. Punxsutawney Phil was right. It's getting warm outside. Winter's over. March is here. It's almost spring. With that being said, we have the great Dr. Joel Kastner on the episode today. Joel Kastner is an expert in all things stars. No man on the planet likes stars more than Joel Kastner. That's the first fact you've learned today. The first fact you've learned today is that Joel Kastner is above and beyond anyone's love for stars. I don't know if Joel Kastner has kids, but if he does, chances are he likes stars equally or more than his children. And that's, and I, I don't know if that's the second fact of the day, but we'll call it the second fact of the day. Third fact, Dr. Joel Kastner is a professor of astrophysics at the Rochester Institute of Technology. And this man will fit stars into any conversation you could ever have. I could go to Joel Kastner and say, Joel Kastner, uh, I regret to inform you this, but I have terminal cancer and I will die in six months and my life will be over. And Joel Kastner will say, Brendan, we're going to get through this. We're going to defeat the cancer. We're going to do everything. He'll console me. He'll break it down. He'll explain it to me. He'll he'll make me feel better. I'll walk out of his office feeling rejuvenated, ready to take on those next six months. But then, a week will go by, and an email will appear in my inbox. And Joel Kastner will say, uh, Brendan, you remember that time we were talking about uh, cancer? Well, here's something cool. There's an awesome star in the constellation Cancer, and the star is called WXYZW2. It's a variable star. It's an M dwarf. He'll break it down. And that's just how Joel Kastner is. He would appreciate me. He would love me. He would console me. But at the same time, he would shove stars in my face. And I'm okay with that. And I appreciate that. And I think Joel Kastner is great for doing it. Now, we talk about that. Young stars. He's an expert in young stars. How do we detect these things first off? How do we find a star that is young? How do we even quantify the age of a star? A lot of people might not even have an understanding of how one would do that. And then, the part that I find interesting. When you find the star... What is around it? Well, what's around it in some cases is young planets that are just forming or potentially a disk of material that hasn't even formed planets yet. And Joel Kastner is able to observe these disks and understand maybe a little more, get ever closer to understanding how solar systems like ours formed. We talk about that. We also, Joel has a, a very interesting life up to this point. He was a freelance musician for a long time before ending up going down the road of astrophysics. I find people's career trajectories to be so cool. There's a lot of people in academia, in, you know, professors. There's a lot of researchers who didn't necessarily have the most entertaining of lives. If you put their life into a book, people would stop reading at about the point where they didn't do anything, okay? At about page five, where their life was just normal, and they had a nice house and a big backyard, and then they went to high school, and they had three friends, and they went to college, and they made six friends, and then they got their PhD, and they were depressed. 17 years later, they got a professorship, a job at a university that's great, okay? A lot of people like that. No one wants to read that book. People do want to read Joel Kastner's book, because he took such an interesting path to get where he is, and he tries to tell people that that is okay, and he serves on the Committee on Employment for the American Astronomical Society. He's actually the chair. 
And that's one thing we talk about a lot because I'm probably not going to stay in academics. I don't necessarily like the culture of academics. And so I like talking to him about that because he sees a lot of people that are getting PhDs, that are getting advanced degrees, that are getting astrophysics, astronomy degrees, who aren't staying in academics, which is cool to me. And they're going off and they're starting businesses and they're working completely separate sectors because what's important is the skills you gain. And we talk a lot about that. And with that being said, people, thank you for listening. Rate the show five stars on Apple Podcasts. Review the show on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe on YouTube. You know the drill. TheStateOfTheUniverse.com, Patreon, PayPal. Support the show. We appreciate you being here. Give it up for the great Doctor. Doctor. With it, that's spelled with that's spelled D O C T A H. Doctor. Joel Kastner. No one in the world, Joel Kastner, likes stars as much as you. <laughs> Every single conversation that I hear you in, you find a way to. F- fit a star into that conversation somehow. Oh. And I was curious if you saw these images and pictures I, of the of the NUA solar telescope. You did? Uh, yes, I did, thanks to the fact that my wife spotted them. Oh, really? Um, in so you didn't even e- expect this to come out? Well, there's so much going on, Brendan, that I'm like... I'm in a perpetual state of, of being overwhelmed. Yeah. I didn't um, know yeah. that this was happening. I didn't yeah. know we were building a state-of-the-art solar telescope. Um, okay. So the only – and the only reason I'm sort of up on this is that, um, again, my wife and I happen to be in Hawaii. We happen to go up to the top of uh, Haleakala uh-huh. um, just – that was uh, uh, about a month ago. Um and so we got to see for ourselves the the Daniel Inoue Solar Telescope. So I, yes, I am aware that oh, it's so you, you know it, yeah. it's been built and mm-hmm. it's starting to take data. Um, yeah. So I, I just wanted I you to, like I yes. I don't expect you to know anything about it, mm. but I was just curious what you thought when you saw it because you're a guy who just loves absolutely <laughs> loves stars, and you could see like convective cell. I don't know if they're convective cells. I assume they are like Texas-sized little uh, blobs of plasma. It's, yes. it's very cool. Yes. And for people listening on, on audio, I, I encourage you to look it up. Yeah. Yeah, right. And you can find it um, in, yeah, in the science news from this past week. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we looked at these uh, videos, my wife and I, and, and I just went, wow. That was, you know, the only thing I could say. And <laughs> yeah, it's, um, uh, it is, I guess it's showing us, uh, you know, I, like you say, I've not thought about it much other than looking at the pictures and saying, wow. And it, it is giving us, though, a look at how fine-grained the structures of stars truly are. And so it's humbling because, as you well know, you take a star's spectrum or take an image of a star and you're just seeing the entire integrated disk of the star mm-hmm. together so you can't ever get to this level of um of um fine granularity yeah i think we can image the surface of of betelgeist betelgeuse however you want to say it yeah. um but n- not to this level of precision at all no way yeah yeah so betelgeuse um antares uh come to mind i'm trying to think m- maybe a couple other um, red giants and supergiants mm-hmm. have been imaged um, in various ways. Um, it's a little outside my realm of expertise. Yeah. No, On fine. the other yeah. hand, I... That's what podcasts are for. You yes. talk about things that you know nothing about. That's, that's Well, a... I, I, yes, I will get myself in hot water if I try to describe those results in any detail at yeah. all. But, but um, I am um, really interested in evolved stars and how they lose their mass 
yeah. um, and will or will not explode as supernovae and things like that. Um, so I've, I've kept up a little bit on the imaging that's been done of those um, red giant stars and supergiant stars. Um, and different techniques have been used from the, you know, the visible range um, all the way out to the radio. Yeah. And they the, do show structure. There's yeah. been this recent buzz about Betelgeuse, Betelgeuse, oh, because it's yes. di- dimming. Have you, saw, have you seen this? Yes. So it's the dimmest yes. that we've, I think that we've recorded it. So that was an interesting, that's an interesting point. I, th- I thought that might be the case based on the, the, the quick look I'd had at the telegrams. It actually, I think around 1980, it may have been a little dimmer. Okay. Um, I only know this because um, our colleague, Michael Richmond, um, mm-hmm. has the, had, had shown us um, at a recent journal club, um, shown us the, uh, the light curve that's been, that's been collected over the years by the American Association of Variable Star Observers. Yeah. Um, and you can, you can see pretty profound dimmings, uh, you know, in previous decades. And there was one around 1980, I think, that maybe I see. Got, yeah. got a little dimmer. In this it's one. got all the buzz. I hope it yeah. blows up. I hope it blows up in our <laughs> lifetime. Like, I don't want it to die. And I, I assume there's probably not any life around it. Um, but if there mm. is, unfortunately, it has to die in order for my pleasure here on earth uh, yeah okay but yeah it would be amazing it would be this, like the brightness of the full moon and oh um, yeah yeah um it would be a little overwhelming i, I think you know we those of us who are astronomers maybe general public would want to like run for cover yeah yeah yeah, yeah. uh-huh <laughs> it's, it's yeah. kind of a when i was thought. a kid yeah. and i was uh, always in like watching those space documentaries you know the things they put on like the science channel or whatever um, I was always so afraid of of kilonova and supernova because the way they would teach them to you on those shows would be like they could be catastrophic. They don't tell you that they have to be next door, and there's probably not any next door. They just tell you yeah. that if one blew up near you, it could be catastrophic. Right. Um, so I was always like deathly afraid of that. Um, but yes. to the stars. Yes. Okay. Okay. I know that your recent work, you're fascinated with young stars. You're doing a lot of work with young stars. Yes. Okay, can you break that down for people listening? Why are young stars important and what do you learn from them? Okay, they're, they're um, interesting and important for so many reasons. Um, a lot of people in my field who are studying young stars um, will tell you, and I would agree, that the only way to understand how the solar system came into being and therefore the only way to understand um, why we are why we exist yeah. uh-huh. <laughs> as human beings, you know, and, and how this planet came to be like it is and could sustain life and so on. The only way to really get at that is by studying stars that are in the act or recently have been in the act of formation that they've, they've recently formed mm-hmm. out of interstellar gas and dust. That they have, um, especially if those young stars happen to have residual material um, around them that was there when they formed, and that material is likely to form planets. Yeah. Um, that can tell us about how the planets came into being. So th- I think the original interest in that for me and for so many other people is, is just an understanding where the solar system came from. I see. But you mentioned just a minute ago that you have done a lot of work studying stars at the end of their life too. Yes. Right? Yes. So how did you transition from studying solar systems that are dying to now solar systems that are being born? Oh, okay. Um, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, I've always, well, I've always been interested in the origins of the solar system and also in the fate of the solar system, what uh-huh. it's, what's going to happen to the sun when it dies. And, and to get back to that point you made about being deathly afraid that kilonova might happen or yeah. supernova might happen in our vicinity, a lot of kids are, you know, 
after learning about yep. that are probably afraid the sun's going to mm-hmm. explode as a supernova. Yeah, I get that question a lot. So, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, fortunately, it's well below the mass limit that that would um, have a super that would go into into supernova, and it also is about five billion years. Um, from dying in any form. So right. yeah. we have a lot of time yeah, to we're safe understand. For now. Yeah, yep. for now we're fine. So anyway, um, but yes, I, I guess the, you know, the, the practical reason that I started studying young stars is that you can use the very same techniques in many cases that you use to study evolved stars, mm-hmm. um, so-called evolved stars, stars that are on their way to death. Um, and those techniques tend to be um, infrared, uh, radio, um, and sometimes X-rays, so you can go all the way out to mm-hmm. the high energy um, part of the, the electromagnetic spectrum. Um, and and so yeah, in, in really super practical terms, I did uh, was a, a close colleague of mine in graduate school, um, David Weintraub, was doing a thesis on young stars, mm-hmm. so-called Titari stars, which we can talk about if you want. Um, and I was doing my thesis on evolved stars, and especially the the ones that are losing mass at high rates. And um, we would go to the telescope together. I would observe part of the night, mm-hmm. um, and David would observe the rest of the night because the stars that I was interested in were up when his were not, and vice versa. I see. Um, so he kind of dragged me, not so much kicking and screaming, actually gladly mm-hmm. into the world of studying. Do, do you young feel stars. like that's a lost art? Because I hear a lot of people talk about, like older tenured professors, talk about spending nights in the telescope. That is not a thing, as far as I can tell, in my generation. Like oh. we're in bed by ten. We're, you know, getting dinner at normal hours. We're, we're not getting a ton of sleep, don't get me wrong, but we're sleeping at night. Do you think, that, do you, do you think that that's like an experience of being an astronomer that has been lost? Uh, well, I'd like to think it's not been lost, but, but you're probably right. It's harder and harder to come by as a student mm-hmm. um, in astronomy and astrophysics now. And that's a real shame. I mean, that said, you, you know what? You and I both know that we could go anytime we want and go to the uh, RIT observatory mm-hmm. when Michael Richmond's running it yeah. and actually watch data being taken. And data, watching data being taken, you know, obser- observations being made at a small telescope is often as interesting or yeah. know, more interesting because uh-huh. you can get your hands dirtier um, than, than going to a major observatory. But yeah, to get back to your question, um, those those were very important formative experiences for me that I got to got in graduate school. UCLA um, had direct access to um, Lick Observatory mm-hmm. in those days. So as a grad student, I went to Lick Observatory um, about once every six months because of research assistantships I was working on with with venerable old professors there, mm-hmm. um, Professor Popper and Professor Aller. Um, both uh, now deceased, uh, sadly. Um, and then later on, I started to go to Kitt Peak with David Weintraub, as I mm-hmm. mentioned. Um, and David and I are still close friends and collaborators. Um, and that was, uh, you know, maybe you could say more the big leagues um, of, of observing. Mm-hmm. You felt a little more pressure to make the most of, of the observing nights that you want on those telescopes because they were competitively awarded yeah. uh-huh. uh, across the country basically right. you know, yeah. and in the world yeah so that yeah having that having the experience of actually having to worry about where your favorite objects are in the sky when you can observe mm-hmm. them you know what the conditions are when the conditions are right to observe them what you can really get out of the data it just means mm-hmm. a lot more when you've actually watched it happen yeah. yeah one of the things that always I think of when I when I think about how the way astronomy has changed is that now it may be at that time 
you had to pick an object that you wanted to go look for, and you had to go look for it. And so that limited the number of objects that you could study, mm -hmm. obviously. You mm -hmm. can't look at a thousand objects in a night. You can only look, pick your prime candidates, go out and try to look at them, and you get some data, and you're probably analyzing that data for months, maybe on end, trying to understand something. Now we're in the era where astronomy has gotten so big that like someone like me, I don't ever need to touch a telescope. I could go into a repository mm -hmm. somewhere and I could find, you know, thousands of hours of observing time, you know? So it's a, it's an interesting trade-off. And mm -hmm. do you like it better this way? Um, or, or are you? <laughs> um, the, what I like is I'm now too old <laughs> to stay up all night and still be, you know, thinking rationally at two or three in the morning. Yep. Um, not that I was <laughs> when I was younger necessarily. But um, so that that part of it, I feel like I would like to you know mm -hmm. leave to the younger generation. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I I still I still miss it in the sense yeah. that you mm -hmm. just you, yeah. you you don't have as deep an understanding of what what's really gone into the data. I think. Yeah. No, that's, that's absolutely right. yeah. true. Yeah. 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 I think many astronomers, even maybe masters, even potentially PhD level astronomers probably couldn't tell you much about the instrumentation or how it works or how the images were actually taken yeah. or the engineering. Um, so yeah, it is kind of a, a lost art. And I think many people would say you don't really need to know that stuff for a lot of the things that you're doing. Um, yes, and I think up to a point that's that's probably true. For one thing, all of us have cell phones. Yes. And so you know, mm -hmm. if, you, if you actually start to take images with your cell phone, you can get some appreciation for what goes into an image if you yeah. start to you know put those mm -hmm. images on your computer and play with them a yep. little bit. Um, so much processing goes into those images before yeah. you ever have a chance to mess with them. Right. That, in in yeah, my on my iPhone, different. I can take the most insanely clear, beautiful pictures mm -hmm. and edit them at a level that probably didn't even exist in studios ten years ago. Right. I can just do that on like with little sliders of a button on my iPhone. It's insane. Yes. I can produce like really beautiful pictures of no fault of my own, just like, you know, moving sliders around and changing contrast and brightnesses and stuff. It's, it's, it's insanely easy. Right, um, right. And, and that's in large part because of the great processing power that exists on those, you know, to work yeah. on the raw images before you ever have a chance to look at how exactly. ugly they might be yeah, when yeah, you take yeah. them in raw uh -huh. form. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, so that's, that whole process is, is mainly the main, is, is probably the main thing that's been lost. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. I think pe I think everyone now has a sense of how to take images, which is that's that's yeah. different than you know. Right. It used to be photography was limited to people who, you know, who, uh -huh. who well, I, I guess I should say, you know, taking really good pictures was limited yeah. to people who really understood. It should probably be were. that way still, because yeah. now you go to like Niagara Falls and there's 70 million people with the phone out, and it's <laughs> exactly. the most annoying thing in the world. Right. And I just want to run by and like smack them over the waterfall, <laughs> not the people, their phones, or the or the people sometimes, depending on how obnoxious. Um, yeah, so something else that's changed that I find really interesting is I swear my memory is different than the memory of, of a colleague of mine who might be in, have been going through academia in a different generation in the sense that mm. my brain looks at an equation and says, I don't need to remember that. There's no reason I need to remember the value of a constant. I, I, I can grab my phone, I can type in what's the gravitational constant, and I can get it in any unit system I ever wanted to get mm -hmm. it in. Um, and so my br like my brain makes a conscious effort now to be like no 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 don't bother remembering that equation that's not important <laughs> don't don't bother mm. studying the lane Emden equation we can look them up later you know um, whereas people I noticed that some of the professors I've had while in college 
that have been more senior, have been in the field for a long time, they tend to have like a, a real, um, they have this like built-in idea that you should be designing a catalog of memories in your head that will help you do science. And I can only imagine mm-hmm. that they're picturing themselves sitting in an observatory somewhere with no connections to uh, anything, maybe limited access to books, mm-hmm. limited access to the internet, mm-hmm. and they have to know things. And I don't think that that, I think that's lost on someone like me. I'm sure you're right that, yeah, uh, you know, our, our brains are being rewired um, by this this avalanche of information and, and the new ways to, to deal with it all. Um, I feel like, personally, I, I've kind of got the worst of both worlds. <laughs> I, I feel like I, I came up in a generation mm-hmm. where we started to, to, to remove ourselves from the need to, mm-hmm. um, to really deeply understand... Yeah. The formalism of astrophysics, um, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I have colleagues who, who who definitely understand it much better than I do. So maybe I'm just it's just a cop out on my part. <laughs> um, I also am not, um, you know, uh, professionally prepared to deal mm-hmm. with the, the the big data yeah. um, uh-huh. era. Uh, you know, I, we can talk about Gaia at some point if you like. That's a great example to me, the, the Gaia Space Astrometry mission, of something I'm just not professionally, professionally prepared for. So, so there I've, you know, that's why I say I'm kind of caught in the middle. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I have the, the collection of baggage that I mm-hmm. come along with, yeah. and, I, and I've, you know, I've learned to, um, to get around my, my own shortcomings in various mm-hmm. ways. Yeah. <laughs> so since you, you bring mm-hmm. up Gaia, mm-hmm. right? Do you use Gaia a lot to, to find? How do you find an actual candidate, a young star, that you might say, think you, it has a planet-forming disk around it? Um, how do you locate something like that? Because, you know, we were talking about earlier how you can pick a candidate and you can go look at it with a telescope. Well, now you have, uh, what does Gaia have, like billions of stars cataloged yeah, in the one galaxy? Yeah, one and a half billion, roughly so, speaking. Yeah, so now yeah. it becomes a problem of, of saying, I have too much data that I don't even know where to begin to look. So how mm-hmm. do you how do you balance that? Yeah. Okay. Well, I can tell you I can tell you a little bit about the history of this field, um, and and just to step back for a second. Yeah, you mentioned that I study young stars with planet forming disks around them. To, you know, and we talked about how that how important that is um, to understanding where the solar system came from and whether other solar systems are going to be like ours and so on. Um, uh, there's a, a large number of astronomers out there in that field. Mm-hmm. So at some point, um, with the, the, the uh, considerable help of my erstwhile thesis advisor, Ben Zuckerman of UCLA, um, I made a conscious decision to try to stay out of the main, uh, out of the main competition in the field mm-hmm. and to limit myself um, to the nearest known examples of young stars. Um, and even even more uh, stringent constraint of, of, of studying the ones that are closer than about 300 light years mm-hmm. to the sun. That puts those stars closer than the nearest known, known star-forming clouds. So that puts me out of reach of a lot of the competition. Yeah. <laughs> Fair. Um, yeah. and, and it's sort of a niche that, um, that Ben and I have, have crafted for ourselves. And there's, a, there's a, actually a, a large and growing community now of astronomers that are interested in, in that general part of the star, star mm-hmm. and planet formation world, the, the part closest to us. So um, I, this kind of got kicked off, I would say, about 20, 30 years ago now? Oh, geez, 30 years ago? I guess it would be. 
with um, the publication of the ROSAT All Sky Survey, mm -hmm. or the the, the um, public public availability of the ROSAT All Sky Survey. Ros ROSAT was an X-ray satellite, German-led um, X-ray satellite uh, telescope mission that surveyed the entire sky for the first time in X-rays at a at a fairly sensitive level. So you're starting to, to pick out fairly faint X-ray sources. Mm -hmm. And um, it didn't take long, this was already known pre-ROSAT from the days of the Einstein X-ray observatory, didn't take long for a lot of astronomers to figure out that young stars are bright X-ray sources. Yeah. Um, and that's a, still a tiny bit of a mystery, I would say, just as it's a mystery that the sun has a corona, um, which is a fun thing that, that um, the, the in a way, telescope can tell us about, mm -hmm. um, tell us more about. But anyway, um, the the availability of all these X-ray observations of young stars um, kind of opened up a different way of studying young stars and identifying young stars. And uh, a few of us started to realize that if you started matching up X-ray sources with random stars in the sky. And you, and you notice these X-ray sources are rather bright mm -hmm. um, coming from those stars. Chances are those stars are young, even though they don't sit where young stars are usually found, which is near star-forming mm -hmm. um, molecular clouds yeah. of gas and dust. So we, we started making a little, little catalogs of these guys. Um, there weren't too many of them known and realized that um, there were some of them that, that seemed to be kind of overpopulated in certain parts of the sky. They were mm -hmm. overabundant over in certain parts of the sky. Um, not by much. And so we put out a paper on five of these young stars, um, young star candidates. They had been identified by other, other people um, as being interesting. But what we re realized is that they all were in the same part of the sky, and when we started looking at their X-ray properties and other things about them, we realized they're probably all about the same age. Mm -hmm. And not only that, they're all really close yeah. to us. Uh -huh. um, so how, how old when you say age? So the age of these stars we figured out at the time we guesstimated um, was between 10 and 20 million years old. Okay. That's, now, for people who don't know, how old is mm, the sun? Yes. It's a question I usually ask. Yeah, <laughs> I ask it actually of of, of all um, of all students in astronomy, mm -hmm. you know, from beginning to yeah. advanced classes. Uh -huh. Four and a half billion is that Four, the answer? Yeah, roughly speaking. Yeah. Yeah, with some just, decimal points. Yes, of course. exactly. Yeah. Yes, okay. and actually some yeah. really well determined mm -hmm. decimal points yeah. based on radioactive um, of elements. Yeah, so twenty to thirty million is incredibly young. Yes, in the in the in the world of star forming. Yes. Okay. These are these are. I wouldn't call them baby stars, but they're certainly toddler stars. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, they're about a hundredth the age of the sun. I see. So, so when you identify one of these stars, what, what do you begin to do? Do you begin to look for a, a disk around the star? Um, what, what is the process like for finding these things? It it often goes in both directions. Um, you you can sometimes discover a young star uh, near that's relatively near the solar system because it's it's got a weird looking spectrum mm -hmm. across the the spectral range the whole electromagnetic spectrum because of the fact that it has a disk and yeah. actually one of these five stars i was talking about we've probably talked about the star uh, too much is the star tw hydra mm -hmm. uh, in the constellation of hydra it's yeah. a variable star 
it was known for some time to have evidence of a, of a planet-forming disk around it. Mm -hmm. um, and that was one of the big mysteries of this star, is that it seems to have a planet-forming disk around it, and yet it's not found where stars that have recently formed would typically be found. It's yeah. found far away from star-forming clouds. Um, that was one of the things that put us onto it. The other thing was the bright X-rays, as I mentioned. Um, and that alerted us to the fact that it has, it has friends in the area. Um, but yeah, so, so I guess that's an example where you can go in both directions. Um, that star was known to have a disk, and then we started mm -hmm. getting interested in it for its, for its potential to have neighbor stars that are similarly young. Yeah. Um, and, those, and then we looked at those neighbor stars, and it turns out some of those stars have evidence for disks if you look more carefully. Mm -hmm. So looking for those disks can take a, a variety of forms. The, the easiest way typically to find the uh, disk, uh, planet-forming disk around a young star, is to look for the, an excess too much infrared emission. Mm -hmm. And that infrared emission, if, if you um, can characterize it you know, properly, um, should be mm -hmm. low temperature relative yeah. to the star. Mm -hmm. And if it's sufficiently low temperature, then you can say, well, chances are I'm seeing cool dust around that star. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and you can characterize temperatures if the temperatures are something like what you see from temperatures of solar system bodies, then yeah. you can go further and say, oh, mm -hmm. those that dust is probably at the distance where planets might be forming right. around that star. Yeah. So the the for people who are listening and maybe mm. aren't experts or sure. even um, up to date on this, if if you detect infrared emission, then you can assume that it's coming from well, not even assume, but you know that it's coming from a something's emitting it, and that something is at a certain temperature, and that temperature is probably pretty cold, right? Yeah. Yes. And 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 like exactly. we emit infrared. Every single day, if you if if you saw if your eyes picked up infrared photons instead of visible light photons, you'd see infrared all around you. Right. Right. Yes. And so it's important that people um, understand. You know, it's probably a good idea to do an entire show on the electromagnetic spectrum. Now, that I come to think of it. Yeah, that that would be a great thing. Yeah. I think. Yes. Yeah. I think yeah. I think for most people who listen to this, they they probably. No one. I, generally, you don't stumble upon a podcast like this. You're like, hmm, I'm going to check this. Generally, you're seeking out uh, a science podcast because you're interested in science. And if you're interested in science, chances are you've done your due diligence and you have some homework under your belt. You know? Sure. Um, yeah. yeah. So that's what I generally rely on. Yeah. So if you're four years old and you just like our voice, that's that's cool too. But <laughs> sorry that you're not getting all of it. Um, right. Well, it's it's interesting though. You know. Uh, so you, you've been in my classes, you've heard me be pedantic about the electromagnetic spectrum and, mm -hmm. you know, ba basic stuff. There, we all are constantly learning about what we can learn from observations across the electromagnetic spectrum, I think yes. is a way to put it. Uh -huh. and when I talk to my, my astronomy colleagues, sometimes I'll be able to teach them something about the electromagnetic spectrum yeah. they didn't know. Uh -huh. and, so, and more often they will teach me something that's like, oh, really? I didn't know you could study that in that particular part of the yeah. electromagnetic yes. spectrum. So, uh, you know, that... Mm -hmm. it, it speaks to the creativity of astronomers, I think. Because we've... we've it's, it's always interesting to me how you can look at the history of astronomy as almost like epochs of studying one particular emission, right? And you, you started with visible light, you started opening it up into uh, infrared and radio, then you started getting into x-rays and gamma rays, yep. you got ultraviolet somewhere along there. Um, and it didn't occur to us all at once, which is the coolest thing. So you, you had periods where you're like, you finally have new eyes on the universe, and then you open up thousands of, of potential papers worth of stuff just by looking in a new 
through new lenses, essentially. And mm-hmm. you saw the same thing with gravitational waves, mm-hmm. which are, are, although not part of the electromagnetic spectrum, they are very much similar in that sense. They're new eyes. Mm-hmm. They help us see new things. Yep. Neutrinos are going to be something that's going to begin to get to that point, I think. Maybe they already are. Um, but, yeah. yeah, we just don't know a lot about it yet. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. no, it's incredibly interesting. Yeah, and a lot of this, a lot of the... the Advances in astrophysics have been made for the, for the, that exactly the reason you're talking about that we've opened up a new part of the electromagnetic spectrum or non-electromagnetic mm-hmm. spectrum as the case may be. Yeah, um, and a lot of the electromagnetic spectrum opening has been accidental. Yeah, someone develops a, a new mm-hmm. sensitive radio receiver because they want to use it for some you yeah. know public or nefarious purpose. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> and they're they're getting all this interference from some re, you know part yep. of the world they didn't know existed. And oh wait a minute, it's coming from up above yep. me. And, and they uh-oh. win a Nobel Prize. Yes, exactly. For detecting the CMB. Yeah, yeah. it yes. is a mm-hmm. it's an incredibly fascinating progression. But we're at a point now where it feels like in the EM range, we've covered the spectrum. We've done a pretty good job. There's some gaps. Like maybe you could make a case for getting an ultraviolet telescope that's better than the ones that have existed or an X-ray telescope. But the point is we've done at least minimalist science across the range, right? So that makes it, that makes it interesting because now you have to uh, – and if you disagree, feel mm-hmm. free to say um, – there, we, we definitely have gaps. And, yeah, and, and where are those gaps? Where do well, you see the gaps being? They'll always be at the extremes, mm-hmm. for one thing. Yeah. We can always go to higher energies. We can always go to lower radio frequencies. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. and, and there are the gaps that exist that are caused by the Earth's atmosphere, mm-hmm. a lot of which we've been able to get past by going up above the Earth's yeah. atmosphere. But that's expensive. The technology mm-hmm. tends to be more limited when yep. you do that. You have to spend uh-huh. longer developing it. Yes. So usually there's there are mm-hmm. there, there will inevitably yeah. I should say be gaps yeah. in our coverage. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But the the, the yeah. point though that I'm I'm yeah. trying to make is that uh, we we've almost engineered our way to this point, right? Mm-hmm. And now we have to do more theoretical work to to push the envelope even further. And it, it seems to fall in line with the your history that you mentioned, where you you were in telescopes taking observations, mm-hmm. and now scientists don't have to do that anymore. Um, and it seems like multiple aspects of the field are, are, are transitioning in this way. And I, and I think it's interesting to note that now w- we don't have to worry about engineering a new optical telescope and making sure we, we tinker with the right things. There are people doing that. And it's a fruitful exercise, you know, to increase resolution or accuracy even further. Mm-hmm. But most people aren't doing that. And most people are saying, okay, I have all this data. Now I need to get creative and learn stuff about it. Yeah, I guess I'd quibble with that. When, when I when I go to an American Astronomical Society meeting, uh-huh. I I am blown away by the 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 simplicity the, the, in well, some of the findings. No, no, no. The 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 new technologies that are being pondered. Oh, right, right, right. Um, yes, right of course. Now. Mm-hmm. So, and those know, would be great I, if we had infinite money. Yeah. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm and I'm and it's not my bailiwick. I'm yeah. I'm I'm much mm-hmm. better at at learning what exists now and taking advantage of it yeah. than trying to to think about what how I how I yes. could help mm-hmm. improve yeah. um, you know instrumentation yeah. and telescopes and so on. But I do know there's there's a, a tremendous push to continue moving. A lot of mm-hmm. it, like you're saying, it's gonna be tremendously expensive, like building an interferometer, a telescope network in mm-hmm. space. Yeah. That can be done, uh-huh. um, but it's gonna be insanely expensive. Yeah. So yeah. we have to figure ha- out ways to get around that cost. Have you heard about star shields? 
Um, this is an emerging idea that I find really interesting. This is as in formation flying. You put a you put a um, a, a large blocking device in front of a star. Yeah, kind yeah, of star yeah, 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 yes, yeah, 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 yeah. So and so that 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 grows out of the mm-hmm. ground-based telescope's ability to use a so-called coronagraph. Yeah. Um, where you, and that's actually named for the sun, for the instrument that was used to mm-hmm. study the sun's corona, where you block out the bright light from the star yeah. and you look at for yeah. look for faint stuff uh-huh. around it. Yeah. Yeah. So to yes. explain this to people listening who might not know yeah. what I'm talking about, a star shield. I, the idea, the way I understand it, is you take essentially like a circle. I think it's called a star shade, by the way. Oh, is it? Yes. Yes. Oh, I think star I shade. Think. Okay. Well, Again, we'll do that. You might be right. Outside my you might be right. This is how astronomy that. works. You just yeah. fumble around with names and then eventually something sticks and it makes no sense. Right. That's that's the history. Yep. Um, and that's why that's why the term planetary nebula exists. It, yes, right. Yes, for the same reason. Exactly. Um, but a, a yep. star shade, star mm-hmm. shade, right, mm-hmm. is a is a essentially a circle that you put really far out in front of your telescope in space, and you can stare at it, and it will block all of the light coming to you from the star, so you can image the region around the star better. So yes. you can do like direct imaging of exoplanets. Right. If you wanted to, or direct imaging of debris disks. Yes. If you wanted to do mm-hmm. that, have we been able to? image a debris disk directly at high resolution. Yes, and it depends what you mean by high resolution, of course, but but um, that's been happening now thanks to some very sophisticated cameras, camera systems on very large telescopes. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's, uh, uh, the Hubble Space Telescope has been doing this for a while. Ground-based telescopes have kind of caught up and, and passed the Hubble Space Telescope because they have, they, you can build a bigger telescope on the ground. Um, so we have very nice cameras now that yeah. can basically freeze mm-hmm. the atmosphere. And because they can freeze the atmosphere, you can get around the, the twinkling effect that, yeah. that scrambles the light. And you can get some very beautiful, sharp mm-hmm. images. Yeah. So, so when, yeah. you, when you study the debris disks, what are you actually looking for? After you've found them, you know they're there, what are you studying them and looking to find? So a, 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 a bunch of different things are important about these these debris disks, and well, we, we should probably talk about these. There's so many so many different terms that are used to describe yes. disks around around young stars. Um, they're they're generically they can be called either protoplanetary disks. Yeah. If we think is debris disk planets. not allowed? Is that a, a, no? De- a, that's de- debris disk is is very much allowed, and it's a, it's a, a variant of <laughs> of a protoplanetary yep. disk in yep. which you think maybe the planets have mm-hmm. already formed yep um and maybe some of them have smashed into each other leaving behind okay i got you debris yeah. that's mm-hmm. now orbiting so in a protoplanetary disk is what you actually have loose gas and it hasn't accreted yet into planets exactly okay yeah you've got lots of of gas and dust yep. typically left okay in a, in a protoplanetary mm-hmm. disk yeah um and in a debris disk you probably mostly just have the dust Mm-hmm. with a small amount of gas that and that that's that's based on measurements people can make in the infrared and radio yeah. regimes typically can you um, explain to someone how yeah. you go from um just a ball of gas to having a star with a debris or a, a protoplanetary disk mm-hmm. and then to a debris disk can you break down that whole because that's something that a lot of people maybe don't understand actually yeah. one of the it's one yes. of the more interesting things i talk about when i when i used to do planetarium shows i don't do them i probably should start doing them here in rochester mm-hmm. um but one of the more interesting things about that process in particular is how simple it seems to ordinary you know most processes in astronomy are tough they're not easy mm. to understand um Unless you do a lot of hand waving, 
And it's possible that the protoplanetary disk explanation involves hand-waving, too. But (laughs) in essence, most people can understand uh, maybe what you're about to explain. Okay, I can can give it a go. Um, And yes, I I would say the overall um, scheme, the scenario... A paradigm, whatever you want to call it, is is pretty well established and fairly straightforward. And the devil is in the details. Yes, because there are always. several parts of the process that make sense when you wave your hands and talk about them, but then when you try to work out the the physics of it, mm-hmm. don't work out yeah. so well. That's why we don't so, do the physics. We just wave our hands and then everything happens. Uh, no, yeah. no, no, no. We're paid the big big yeah. bucks to do the physics. Yeah. Well, that's no, why ten percent error works. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Ten percent error works on explanations too. Uh, yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I guess so. Not anymore in the era of Gaia. We know distances to stars far too well now. We can't shove them under the rug anymore. That's why a lot of this stuff is, is problematic, uh-huh. actually. But, okay, um, you, you the basic idea is this. You, you do start out with, with a cloud, quote-unquote, of gas and dust. Mm-hmm. How you get that cloud in the first place in the galaxy, that's an interesting question. How you get and maintain that cloud of, of gas and dust is an interesting question that um, a lot of people are working on. But suppose you have that cloud of gas and dust sitting in the galaxy, and suppose you disturb it somehow. That's another thing that people are working on that's mm-hmm. unsolved. Um, exactly how you can disturb it. There yeah. may be multiple ways. If you disturb it, you can get the the various particles, individual particles in the gas cloud to feel the gravitational effects of all the other uh, particles in such a way that their, their mutual gravitation can overcome the pressure in the cloud mm-hmm. that exists in the cloud. The pressure can come from a couple different sources. It can come from the fact that the, 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 the particles are, are slamming into each other. Um, that's the gas pressure. It can also come from the fact that there might be a magnetic field in the gas mm-hmm. cloud that can kind of keep the particles separated because the particles like to stick around to where the magnetic field is. Um, if, so anyway, if the gravity can somehow overcome the sources of pressure, the mm-hmm. magnetic field and, the, and the, the, uh, the temperature of the cloud itself, then you can get a, a collapse started in, yeah. in, a re, in a part of the cloud that's usually called a core inside the cloud because it's got slightly higher density. Mm-hmm. It probably starts out with slightly higher density and then gets pushed and goes to increasingly high density. That, that starts a, a free fall um, where all mm-hmm. the, the particles are falling inwards toward each other, toward a common center. Yeah. It, once that process starts, it's hard to stop it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's going to form a star. The, if, if everything was perfect and nothing was moving in, in, or rotating, then everything would want to fall in on itself and you'd get this nice little point-like object. Mm-hmm. That never happens in, in real life because right. you always have some net angular momentum mm-hmm. um, and angular momentum the best illustration I can think of it mental illustration is you watch a skater on the ice yeah. who's got um, his or her hands well out and is starting a pirouette mm-hmm. and then they pull their hands in in a beautiful um, spiral and they start spinning faster yeah. and so that's that's angular momentum at mm-hmm. work the, you the, use the term pirouette pirouette I don't know it's are you right. a fan of, of it's not the right figure word, skating I don't know I don't even know what it means uh, you could have fooled me yeah it's a spin. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I thought maybe you were like an expert in the no, field of no. figure skating. Oh my gosh! I, I probably have offended you know figure skating enthusiasts. That's okay. There's four people in the world who like figure skating, so I don't. They're probably not listening. Oh come on, come on. My, my wife is definitely among the the, the, the huge yep. figure skating fans. All right. Out there. Well, there's three other ones, so it's good that you know one of them. 
Anyway. So yeah, yeah, the spin, the spin that a mm. that a that a, 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 a skater does on the ice is, is goes faster when this when the skater pulls mm. in his or her hands. So that's angular momentum at work, and the same thing happens. So as this as this in falling gas cloud starts to fall, mm-hmm. then it'll start to spin faster. And in fact, if angular momentum is conserved, which it has to be, um, it's one of those physical principles that cannot be violated, yeah. um, then that gas cloud will never um, contract to form a mm-hmm. star because it'll always want to to flatten out and, yeah. and distribute itself. Mm-hmm. But the fact is that angular momentum um, is, is um, is redistributed as this gas cloud yeah. is is contracting in such a way that it forms this pancake structure, and it also what starts to happen is material will, as it falls in will get thrown out of the mm-hmm. system, and it tends to get thrown out along the poles of the system, and so we see this in action. We see condensations inside these gas condensations in mm-hmm. dust inside these cloud cores that are both infalling mm-hmm. um, sort of along the, the, their equatorial regions and then are dramatically um, ejecting gas along their polar regions. They're called bipolar outflows in the world of young stars. Mm-hmm. So we, see, we think that's the star formation yeah. process at work. I and see. it will inevitably leave this central, um, very condensed object that's going to be the star mm-hmm. and a disk of material around it. That's... that's Got to happen, yeah. according to the conservation of angular momentum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so now when you, you have this disk around this young star, the disk is going to have pieces of it that have higher density, right? And those higher density regions are going to attract other things, and you're going to slowly form planets. There's probably some um, yeah. deeper details there, but, but yes. in essence, and that's and what's going to happen, Those details are really hard to yeah, work out. Really it turns hard. out yeah, really yeah, hard. I mean, they, they, they begin in the same kind of a way that the, the star itself... Mm-hmm. Uh, started to collapse, and, and that's with yeah. some sort of, of gravitational mm-hmm. um, contraction. Yeah. They, that's one. I should say that's one way they can happen. That, that you can get a planet mm-hmm. started. The other way is is just through collisions and things sticking instead yes. of breaking. Mm-hmm. Right. So now, that when you have the protoplanetary disk, and you begin to image these disks, like like people that you know have done, and like you've done, and you start to look at these disks, do you see some of the small planets begin to form? Have you found disks with noticeable planets forming? Ah, Your great face question. implies to me that you're like, <laughs> may, maybe? Well, yes. <laughs> Depends who you ask. So the, the, the evidence, um, I'm trying to think, with one, it's just kind of amazing at this uh, stage of, this, of you know, mm-hmm. study of stars and their planet-forming disks, young stars and their planet-forming disks, we can, I can only think of one example of a disk with a pretty secure detection of what looks like a protoplanet in mm-hmm. that disk. The other, I think, I think all the other evidence is indirect mm-hmm. in the sense that what you see when you look at these disks are grooves, almost like, you know, the grooves in the old vinyl albums that uh, yeah. are now back in That's where the term groovy came from. Uh, yes. I didn't know yes. that until yes. someone told me on this show, actually. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I didn't know that. Yes, no, grooves you... in vinyl. Yeah, yeah. Yeah from the 60s um yeah so we see we see um, gaps mm-hmm. that have formed in discs and and one of the leading theories um for what might generate these gaps is the formation of a planet yeah but uh, to my knowledge we have only found one example of a planet a protoplanet sitting in a disc mm-hmm. and it's sitting in sort of a central clearing 
yeah. inside that disc. It's not mm -hmm. really sitting in one of these grooves or one of these gaps mm -hmm. that's formed the disc. We do see now lots and lots of discs with amazing um, structures. You see everything from discs with multiple gaps, multiple grooves mm -hmm. um, that are being carved in them, to, to um, compact discs that you can just barely resolve around the star with huge rings around them. Mm -hmm. So I guess the you know the easiest analogy here is most people have seen pictures of Saturn. Yeah, think of Saturn, and mm -hmm. we see we now see structure in discs that look a, a lot like the rings of Saturn. In fact, take Saturn, scramble the rings. Think about you know Saturns with with uh, two or three rings, Saturns mm -hmm. with you know three thousand rings. Yeah, you can find structures mm -hmm. three thousand maybe an exaggeration, but you can you can find disc structures around stars mm -hmm. that resemble yeah. every kind of Saturn you can yeah. imagine. Now I've heard many people say that the reason those rings are there, those grooves are there, is because you have a, a planet that's sweeping out material as it, as it goes around. Yeah, that's it's, the basic idea. That's the idea. That's the basic idea. Okay, right? now when you study these, I don't, I don't know if there's enough research to actually answer this question well, but do you think that the star-forming disks you've found, or the, rather the, the planet-forming disks that you've found and that you've looked at and that you've read about, do you think they mimic sort of the, the solar system in the sense that they're big enough to produce many planets, do you think, and in essence the question mm -hmm. is, based on what you've seen, do you think the solar system is rare in that it has however many planets it has, depending on who you ask, and, and do you think that, that configurations like this won't be found often? Oh, no, okay, I, I think what we've found, I should mention by the way, that a lot of, a lot of the images um, of disks that show these ring structures now have only been accessible for the last, have only been um, taken in the last mm, three to five years or mm -hmm. something like this. This is since two, two um, major developments, one being these sophisticated cameras on large telescopes I yeah. mentioned, taking uh, so-called adaptive optics images. And the other is the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, mm -hmm. which is this um, array of uh, more than 50 radio telescopes in Chile. So I mention that because the, the variety of ring systems that you see in these disks and mm -hmm. the amount of mass that's present, in, still present in these mm -hmm. disks, is easily sufficient to come up with all kinds of planetary systems consisting of multiple planets. Mm -hmm. The only thing rare about the solar system may be the fact that it's in this particular configuration, right. this convenient, um, simple configuration Mm -hmm. of, of, of these so-called terrestrial planets in the, in the central region of the mm -hmm. solar system, and then these gas giant planets in the outer reaches of the solar system. Yeah. Um, that particular configuration may be kind of mm -hmm. the, um, well, it's the one that was easiest to explain before we started seeing all the other ones. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, remember, I remember being taught this when I was in college, mm -hmm. that the reason you have, this has probably changed in the last five years, um, that the reason you have terrestrial planets here, gas planets here, ice giants out here, is because you you had pressure that was pushing the gas out, and it could not, it wasn't sufficient to push the actual sort of rocky planetary type stuff further out. Mm. Um, I don't. Is that is that a dead idea? Well, now that basic idea is okay, but there's there's probably uh, there there are other things yes, that that are of important and maybe more important. Mm -hmm. um, one being the actual radiation mm -hmm. from the from the central star. So it's not necessarily pressure, but just just radiation from the from the star as the star is forming and the planets are forming around it, or after the star has finished forming and the planets are forming around it, 
Um, th that star is going to be, as I mentioned, this, this intense source of high energy radiation, yeah. x-rays, uh -huh. ultraviolet, that will tend to just evaporate, photo evaporate mm -hmm. a lot of the gas. It'll get rid of the volatile mm -hmm. elements, um, yeah. volatile compounds, things like um, carbon dioxide, mm -hmm. carbon monoxide, um, simple molecules like that, that um, are present, e even hydrogen in its molecular form, mm -hmm. those things are, that are present in gas giant planets and are present in, abundant, in abundance, large abundance in the ice giant planets, those things are going to get fried, for right. lack of a better yeah, term, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. if, they're, if they're in close vicinity to mm -hmm. the star. And so that, that's what makes our solar system kind of make sense. Yeah. But um, as my more learned colleagues would, would stress, there are lots of flaws with that simple, even that simple idea. Mm -hmm. Um, just the the abundances, and, and this goes a bit beyond my, I'd have to go back and read the papers again, the recent papers, about the abundances in in the in the terrestrial planets mm -hmm. versus the gas giant planets, for example. There are problems with the simple idea that the volatile things get fried, and that's why yep. you, you don't have much mm -hmm. of them. There are lots of volatiles, actually, in the Earth, it yeah, turns out. They're right. just kind of, mm -hmm. they're buried inside the Earth. Yes. So, so the, they're... they're you know, part of the composition of the mm -hmm. Earth. So how that stuff survived in 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 sufficient mass to make a thing mm -hmm. like the Earth sufficiently close to the sun is still a bit of a yeah. mystery. Has anyone proposed magic? <laughs> is that something that's come up? Not in any of the mm. uh, the conferences I've attended so yeah. far. Oh, I've been yeah. to a few where they uh, propose magic. Well, yeah, conferences? Oh, yeah. Yes? Which yeah. kinds I of I think sometimes they need speakers and they just, like... Don't read the abstracts, Val. Uh, I, I see what you're saying, yeah, yes. <laughs> I was at a conference where uh, mm -hmm. a, a guy was, um, it was a fluid dynamics conference that I was presenting at, mm -hmm. and there was a talk called um, How I Solved the Problem of Turbulence. Uh -oh. And his solution to the problem of turbulence was that turbulence didn't exist. That was the solution. Oh, yeah. okay. He was not a well-respected member of the community. He wasn't even a member of the community. I think he just decided, mm. I'm going to yes. submit an abstract and see yes. how I can give a talk. Okay. Um, needless to say, though, Due to the title of the abstract, hundreds of people went to this guy. So it was like a Nobel did, speaker. Did they bring tomatoes and no? But quickly, fresh quickly, rotting yeah. fruit. After the first two slides, everyone yeah. was was heading towards the back to get mm. out of there. But okay. yes. no, no, no. Yeah, I've seen some magic being proposed at a <laughs> conference or two. Certainly. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. Going forward, though, like in the mm. next decade, how do you foresee this this community changing? Um. Well. I th one one thing that's that's going to happen it is starting to happen actually, um, and it's it's largely um, a result of being overwhelmed with the data from the Gaia Space Astrometry mission. Mm -hmm. Is that the number of known nearby young stars and and I think even more distant young stars is going to explode. Mm -hmm. um, we we now have what you know what we think are are sort of relatively complete catalogs. Of young stars, say within um, the, the the nearest 300 light years mm -hmm. or so, if you go down to masses, say about half that of the sun, yeah. we have reasonably complete knowledge now of those stars. Although mm -hmm. I wouldn't say complete, totally. When you go to lower masses, where things get even more interesting for reasons we could talk about, mm -hmm. lower mass stars, little little dwarf, cool red dwarf stars, um, we're we're woefully um, Incomplete as yeah. far as our knowledge of those mm -hmm. stars goes. So suddenly, with the with Gaia, we have access, in principle, to a to 
um, identifying lots mm -hmm. more of those stars. So we're going to have this explosion mm -hmm. of knowledge of of the population of young stars yeah. within and that's going to I imagine revolutionize the so the telescopes like Kepler revolutionized exoplanets right we at a yes. time we didn't we weren't sure that there were thousands of exoplanets in our vicinity maybe some people were but the community as a whole probably wasn't very convinced of that right um, Kepler obviously changed that now we have like 5000 confirmed and however many um, what's the what's the other one Lisa is that that's wrong no what's the can't come up with the name of it. Uh, Tess. It was Tess. Tess. Yes. Yeah, Tess. The Tess mission. Um, I'm sure they have a bunch that they haven't released to the public yet. Yeah. Um, the the point is that whole, that whole thing factory. has changed. Yeah. I can only yeah. imagine this field is going to revolutionize that same thing. It's going to make us realize that these not only are planets forming, but they're forming by the thousands around all of these young stars that we can find. Yes, right. Um, we were on the verge, I think, of, of finding a lot more mm -hmm. um, recently formed planets around stars of all masses, especially low masses. Yeah. And it, we're kind of standing right at the edge of that. Mm -hmm. um, I, and it's, this gives me a chance to plug the fact, I don't know if you noticed, it just was a press release that just came out on a discovery by um, two PhD students here. I did notice. Uh, you yeah. did? Yeah. Yeah. Annie Dixon Vandervelt and um, Emily Wilson, mm -hmm. with a little help from me, <laughs> um, they managed to to find what we think, what we believe is the nearest known example of a massive planet mm -hmm. um, that's younger than 10 million years old. Okay, um, it's only 300 light years or so away from mm -hmm. the sun. So that's and that was. Uh, right out of the Gaia data, it was it was hiding in plain sight, and mm -hmm. anyone could have found this actually yeah. in the Gaia data if you just know what to look for. It's a little dim red thing that's right next to one of these low mass stars I was talking uh -huh. about. The star, the the host star, the parent star of this thing is maybe a third of the mass of the sun or yeah. something like that. Yeah, if, if, so people should look at archival data more. Yes, because there's so much. I had a Duncan Lorimer on here a couple times, mm -hmm. and, and he's famous for finding the first fast radio burst in in archival data. Okay, yeah. There's many people that I've had on here who have made careers or at least substantial papers out of just looking at archive data right. and saying, "What? What's that? What's that weird thing?" This was yeah. this was so simple in hindsight to find, mm -hmm. um, and you know, it didn't Do take any really long to find it. Ah, that's a, that's a good question. I don't, we, we think there would not be anything this young that's this close. Mm -hmm. um, the reason we think we know that is it, this little, this uh, little tiny object, if you want to call it that, it's 10 times the mass of Jupiter. It, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of a star, it's a little tiny object. It's yeah. not really a star at all. Um, we, it, it is part of, it orbits a star that is part of mm -hmm. the so-called Epsilon Chameleontis Association. So it's a group of young stars that is about three to five million years old, depending on um, mm -hmm. how you go about um, getting the ages of these stars. And it's the nearest known example of such young stars, mm -hmm. these, these stars that are in this association. So the fact that it is part of association means, you know, you have, you have to find another object in that's part of this association yeah. um, that's similarly ma low low mass, mm -hmm. um, and we haven't found one yet. Doesn't mean it's not sitting there. Right. We yeah. haven't found one yet. Fair enough. Yeah. I, I want to transition a little bit mm -hmm. because you have a an interesting role. What is the the a What is the role that you play in terms of careers? So I am the chair of the American Astronomical Society's uh, Committee mm -hmm. on Employment. See, this is my problem with yes. our field. Uh -huh. Too many words. 
<laughs> it's just too many words. It's like let's I, and then they're like, mm-hmm. okay, we can solve the word problem. Let's just do acronyms. Right. And then the acronyms get you know a million letters long, yeah. and before you know it, we're back to the same problem. Yes. Um, the American Astronomical Society yes. it's existed for, I forget, something like 100 years now. Yes. Um, it's the association that mm-hmm. you can join if you're an astronomer, whether professional or amateur, yeah. actually, um, and you have passion for, for astronomy. Yeah. Now, now mm-hmm. some, something interesting. First off, you are hidden from the Internet. Do you know that? It was very hard to, like, get information on your career. <laughs> I'm very, very bad you, about yeah. maintaining websites, yes. Mm, you, well, you, like, you don't have social media. You don't, right. you're, you're hidden from it all, yeah. um, which is a, a good thing, I suppose. Uh, I can't put my phone down some days. It's just laziness, yeah. Brendan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm pointing it out. This could have been much easier if you just shared right. your life on social media. But I'm a bit of a you know, Luddite, and yeah. it's also laziness. Now, yeah. you're a musician, too. Yes. Right? And, yes. and one of the things I found is that you were a freelance musician. Yes. Was that before you uh, went off to become an astronomer? Yes. Oh. Strictly speaking, it was. Yeah. I, I was a musician, a professional musician, before, well before I was a professional mm-hmm. astronomer. Partly because I didn't really realize one could be a professional astronomer, or if, or if I yeah. did, I didn't really understand what it entailed. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I started playing guitar at age twelve, I guess it was. Yeah. What are your What are your influences? Top three bands that oh influenced you? That's so hard. Um, well, the Rolling Stones got me kicked off on 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 guitar in the first place. Are you going to go Chuck see Perry. them? At the key, I think they're going to Buffalo in June. Uh, no, I think I could do without seeing the Stones at this point. <laughs> Why? <laughs> they're only ninety-seven I, years old. I, yeah, I, I did watch the um, this concert they recorded in L.A. not too long ago. I actually did see them live a few they, years ago. Yeah, they yeah. they they still can tear it up. Um, yeah, they can. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. pretty amazing. I think I don't know Mick Jagger. I think he's like on a. I think there's like a something that. Like like a coat rack that's yeah, hooked to him that makes him so, dance because right. I don't believe he can actually do that. Um, so, but okay, but I have to say very quickly that um, it didn't take me long to to be passionate about equally passionate about the music of Wes Montgomery mm-hmm. um, and Bill Evans. So those are those are jazz musicians. Yeah, you know Wes Montgomery is uh-huh. like one of the greatest guitarists who ever lived, and Bill Evans is one of the greatest jazz pianists who ever lived. So once I got into that music, probably you know through Joni Mitchell and other people that I was listening to as a teenager and even younger. Um, then then I, I got into jazz. And yeah. I still, I, I can't decide what I like more about music. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, There's so many people I have genre. on the show yeah. that are into music. Like, mm. so many of them. Oh, it's very common am- among among physicists and astronomers. Why? Do you scientists. know why? I, th- I feel like um, art in general, we, we, we tend to be, I don't know, our hobbies... That I talk to, the people I talk to, their hobbies always have something to do. Um, it's either exercise or it's art. Those are the two things. They're either going to run seventy mm, miles yeah. or they're going to play guitar. Yeah, and I can't see. I can't say where that comes from um, exactly, but it it it's it's a great. Um, they they play off each other very well. Put it that way. Um, I find that one, you know, maybe it's oversimplified. I don't, I don't know anything mm-hmm. about neurology, but you know, one one, brain, one side of the brain's directing one pursuit, and the other side of the brain's tra- directing the other pursuit. Except not really, because you have to to, to learn an yeah. awful lot of yeah. very dry theoretical stuff to be able to play music very well, uh-huh. and you also have to be very creative to be a scientist. Yeah, <laughs> you have to look beyond the data mm-hmm. and and kind of. Uh, Inspiration occurs mm-hmm. without you trying. Yeah. yeah. So, did you want to pursue music? 
Is, oh, oh yeah, definitely. Yeah? definitely. Why, why did you decide, nah, we're going to do the astronomy thing instead? Um, because well, the, the, there's one roadblock for me is that I was never a very good sight reader on guitar. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to be a professional guitarist um, past a certain level, unless you are uh, you know, just blessed with incredible talent and there are some, you know, Robin Ford comes to mind. I don't think he reads very well. He's a great guitar player, but they're 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 in the minority mm-hmm. um, among successful, yeah. truly successful mm-hmm. musicians in terms of being able to make a living. Yeah, you have to be able to sight read. Okay, go into the studio and someone puts plunks notes down in front of you. Mm-hmm. You just have to play, be able to play it. Yeah, the the reason I ask, and I ask all the people who tell me they're into music, the mm-hmm. same question is like, why didn't you pursue music? And the question is always like, or the answer is always like, there was some hurdle where it seemed like I wasn't going to be able to to get to that, that level yeah. to make a career out of it. And then my rebuttal is always, do you realize you're a tenured professor at a research university? <laughs> Does that occur to you? I mean, this is arguably as big a hurdle. That is that is a happy accident, and I, I'm just delighted that that happened. I, can't, you know, I, I tell people I wake up every day just, you know, I can't believe I get to do this for a living, frankly. And, and yeah, I guess it's the, the two things are, are equally improbable. It, it, and to be successful requires a lot of luck and mm-hmm. opportunism. Yeah. So there's so something that I, I'm curious how this was in your in in your time in grad school, but a lot of the people that I talked to who who came up at a time say before like 20 maybe like 2010 or 2005 or something like that into, into their PhD, mm-hmm. a lot of them there was like this this idea that when you're pursuing a PhD you work and you work all the time constantly mm. pursuing your 80 hours a week whatever you don't do anything outside of that. Now it's very different and now it's you you almost uh, encourage students to do something other than be here yes. and doing this, and um, <laughs> I wonder how. Well, like, what advice do you have for people who are pursuing a PhD now but might have a passion for music? Oh, you got to keep playing. Um, a- absolutely. Uh, so I could tell you a funny story that when I was um, pondering um, more seriously astrophysics, and I will be totally honest, the reason that I I did pursue it, and and my wife will hate the fact that I'm going into this uh, potentially on, um, you know, in a format where someone else can hear this <laughs> other than the two of us, but um, it was because she was about to pursue graduate school mm-hmm. on the West Coast. We were living in Washington, D.C., and I yep. knew she was going somewhere out there that I decided I better get more serious about this um, this. Um, yeah. academics mm-hmm. thing and also go into grad school. I had, yeah. I had a, a PhD, uh, I had a bachelor's rather in physics um, that I was wondering whether I would ever use again anyway. Mm-hmm. And so I started applying to grad schools. Um, and I mentioned this because um, I was um, silly enough, I guess, to say to the, to the recruitment committee um, at UCLA, yeah, one of the reasons I want to come to LA is because I know the music scene is great there. Yeah. Um, and that, I guess, met with a little bit of um, astonishment. Yeah. And so I got a call back. Are, are you really serious about this astrophysics thing? Uh-huh. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, of course I am. Yeah. Of course, oh, yes, so, nothing I'd okay. rather do more yeah, than yeah. astrophysics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I kind of, I, I suppressed the music thing, but I was a practicing musician in L.A. on yeah. a low level. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I would, I would play regu- fairly regularly in, in clubs yeah. around L.A., but I kept it a secret. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until within a year of graduation, I was working with Ben Zuckerman at the time, mm-hmm. that um, Ben found out I had a gig, and he was furious that I hadn't informed him up until that point. Mm-hmm. He was not one of the recruitment committee, apparently. Yeah. He was furious that I hadn't informed him up to that point that I was actually uh, 
you know, practicing musician yeah. in the LA area. Was he furious that you didn't tell him, but and he wanted to see you, or was he exactly. furious that, yeah? Yeah, he wanted to come see okay. you play. This is, in, I have an interesting <laughs> parallel, because I've had people mm-hmm. um, to get, a, like, be, react that way when I told them about this, doing yes. the podcast. Uh-huh. Um, react that same way, like, wait, are you actually serious about doing this PhD thing now? And I'm like, hey. Uh, Hey, no. there's you know 24 hours in a day. And, and uh, you own 40. You own 40 a week. I give you 60 a week. I can do what I want outside of that. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, yes, you you have to put in the hours. There's no question. You have to put in the hours required, um, and it it usually comes naturally mm-hmm. to to excel at what you're doing. Yeah. And, and usually you just get pulled into it. It's not like you're a matter of forcing yourself to do it. Yeah. Often it is a matter of forcing yourself to do it, but you're, you just get pulled into it. Curiosity pulls you pulls you further and further into doing mm-hmm. a good job on your PhD. That yeah. just happens. Um, but I think it's important if you're a musician, or if you have a hobby, or if you like to exercise, mm-hmm. you gotta main you gotta maintain that. Yeah. Otherwise, you go nuts. Yes. Yeah. And so, something else that you pointed out to me that I find really interesting, and we got five minutes left yeah. to talk about it, is that. Um, Along with this freedom to explore things in your PhD, you're not working, the, most people aren't working a million hours a week. There's still some people who expect that out of you. Mm. Most people aren't. Um, now you see students or candidates, whatever you want to call them. Some people don't like the word PhD student. It implies that you're like a low-level, lowly oh, person. We're all students. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, some PhD students now have a chance and some time and an opportunity to explore the things they want to do. And then... I. I think what happens is you get to the end of your PhD and you might realize, wait, let's pursue that other passion. Mm-hmm. Let's use the skills I got while getting the PhD. Yes. They might, it might not necessarily be associated with the PhD, but I'm going to use those skills and I'm going to pursue this passion that I've been working on. Yep. Have you noticed that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, it's, and it's something that I personally try to support mm-hmm. because, um, as you well know, um, not uh, more than about 20% or something like that of PhDs are going to stay mm-hmm. in academic research in astrophysics. Yes. And, and that number actually is interesting because a lot of the people I talk to, my peers, they don't even want to pursue a career in academia. Mm-hmm. It's not even on their radar. It's like, I don't, whatever, I don't care. Uh, publish or perish, okay, I'll perish. I'll go <laughs> make $160,000 as a software company. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And and I think the, the difference maybe now... I think it most, I mean, maybe I'm just um, speaking hopefully here, but I think the difference is that that's, there's less of a stigma associated with that sort of mm-hmm. thinking now. Um, and, and that's actually the work that the employment committee is actively pursuing is just trying to um, find ways to encourage that kind of thinking rather than discourage it mm-hmm. because um, rather than, than, then suppress the idea that that's that you might go into into something other than academia at the end of your PhD. We mm-hmm. should be encouraging that. It's where most people with a PhD are going to end up anyway. Yeah. Um, so we should be finding ways to connect people that are pursuing PhDs with other opportunities, mm-hmm. opportunities outside academia. Yeah. It's not easy. And I think actually we here at RIT are in a slightly privileged position in some ways because RIT has existed as an institution, mm-hmm. um, as a as a, a way to get people into industry, that, yeah. you know, get young people into industry. Mm-hmm. That's 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 been its mission for the whole time yeah. of its existence. Yeah. So uh, anyway, yeah. One thing that really helps is the name of this program. I don't know if you ever recognize that, but the mm-hmm. fact that it's called Astrophysical um, Sciences, Sciences and Technology. And technology yeah. What that does is a very interesting thing, particularly for for um, 
immigrants, I've noticed this, who can only apply to certain grants. It opens up them to apply to so many more fellowships because now they can apply to tech fellowships. They can apply to technology fellowships. They can apply to physics fellowships. They can apply to astronomy fellowships. They can apply to all of the above. I I had this talk recently with someone who isn't from America, and so their their choices of, of fellowships are like, you know, not very many because uh-huh. most of them go through the NSF or some governing body and they only give them to American citizens. But, you know, that's an interesting way in which this program helps That's a different people. wrinkle that I had never occurred to me, yeah. actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I don't feel like we do things all that differently in our program relative to other programs. It's partly about just the institution and the environment that the yeah. program happens to sit in, yes. I think. Yeah. yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. Uh, okay. We should yeah. probably wrap this up. Okay. Joel Kastner, thank you for being here. Well, thanks for having it. me, Brendan. I enjoyed yeah. it. We'll do it again we can, sometime. We can, yeah, we should definitely chat more. Yeah, we will. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. Um, I realized I never told you this. Mm-hmm. That we're, we're done recording, but okay. I never told you that I'll record like an intro and attach the intro to the sure. episode. No, I realized that you okay. probably did that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. Just so you know, because I just started talking to you. and Thank you for tuning in, people. Grade A. That was a grade A episode, if I'm being honest. This thing is like catching on. This is interesting to me. Grade A. Grade A. Please go rate and review the podcast. Five stars. Just type grade A. Just type grade A. Five star rating. Type grade A. You don't need to think about it. Listen, some people don't want to leave a review because they're thinking, Brendan, I don't want to write a paragraph about the shit that you do good and the shit that you do bad, okay? I don't want to draw a Venn diagram and it's going to take me seven hours to come up with a review. Solution. Just type grade A. Five stars, grade A. Because that's what this is. If we're being honest, it's grade A. It's grade A beef. It's not It's not disgusting, like gritty, nasty, fatty, grisly beef. Okay? This, my friends, is a medium rare. A medium rare. Filet mignon. Okay? A filet mignon. And that's how you say it. Alright, and if you want, you can pay me uh, $10 or $20 on Patreon or PayPal, and I'll teach you how to say it. Because I know a lot of people like that aren't cultured like I am, they don't know how to say it. But it's mignon, okay? And you gotta say it like that. And you kinda and your face kinda makes like a duck, like almost like a duck shape with your lips. And that's the best way to say it. Anyway, sorry this episode's coming late this week. Because I've been traveling. I've been traveling. I try to do here's my goal. My goal is in an ideal world, we would do an episode every week, but this particular period of time between like January and May is going to end up being like the busiest period of my existence. So I've been doing every other week with the sporadic week filled in, but you should expect at the very minimum every other week, because that's what I've been holding myself to since January. Okay. And, and most of the weeks, actually, we've done one a week. But in February, we did only two episodes, all right? We were supposed to do the Joel Kastner episode in February, too, but I've been traveling, so I couldn't upload. So now you're getting it, first episode in March. Are you going to complain? Some of you might. But to those people, shut your mouth, okay? If you're thinking right now, you just listen to the whole episode. If you just listen to the entire episode, all one hours and seven minutes of the episode, and you get to this point now, and you just realize that you're upset that I'm uploading late, chances are you're actually stupid. You know? I want you to think about someone who's stupid and then also think about yourself 
And then also think about whether or not when you thought about who's stupid and yourself, you thought about the same person. That's what I need you to do, okay? Because chances are, if you're actually dumb, then that's what you did. And that's not curable, really. But anyway, I was traveling. I was in beautiful Florida, beautiful Orlando. Well, you can't really call it beautiful. It's honestly though, it's it's beautiful as long as your your neck is in your head or turned to, so that they face the sky. If you're just looking up, if you walk around in Florida and just look up, Florida's a beautiful place. If you look in front of you or you look down, it's disgusting. And the water in Florida, the tap water in Florida. Listen, where everyone's up in arms about Flint, Michigan, there is no way that the Flint, Michigan school system has worse water than every citizen in Florida. No way at all. Because Flint, Michigan might have lead. Okay, fine. Minerals. They add minerals for taste in my water. They probably put lead in, in the water, bottled water I buy because I like to kill the planet. But in Florida, Florida tap water literally tastes like ExxonMobil. Florida tap water is identical to if you went to the gas station and you pressed the 87 grade gas and you put the thing in your mouth and you filled it up, your your body, you filled your body up from your stomach up through your throat into your mouth, you filled it completely up with fuel and you let it sit there for a week, that is what Florida tap water tastes like. I don't understand why it ta it tastes like sewage it tastes like jet fuel it tastes like it tastes like you're licking an alligator like the hide of an alligator a fresh alligator coming out of a pond do you know how alligators sit like on the top of the water for like a month at a time and they just have moss grow on them that's what the inside of a copper pipe in florida tastes like i don't get how it can be so bad like it was so bad that as i was drinking it i was thinking i'm going to get sick like, I'm, I'm down here for five days or four days. I literally have to make a decision whether or not I want to uh, die of dehydration or drink jet fuel. It was so disgusting. And honestly, if someone lit a lighter, if, if you're in Florida, this is interesting. Uh, you might not know this. If you light a lighter in Florida, people around you will catch on fire because there's literally jet fuel in their bodies. That's why people don't light lighters in Florida. If it gets too hot out sometimes, if it, when I lived in Pennsylvania... We had a fire watch. Uh, fire watch was like um, the chances of you having a wildfire any given day. And they were normally low. If it's been dry for a long time and it's going to be 90 degrees out, then the fire fire chances are going to be high. You're going to be on a high fire watch. In Florida, they're always on a high fire watch and they don't even have trees. Okay. And the reason is because the people literally catch on fire. The people. One time I went up to the water fountain. And I hit the button and just fire came out. And it melted the bottle I was using. No water, just literally jet-fueled fire. It's not good. It's frankly, it's it's not good. We have some problems. Listen, Donald Trump wants to keep America great. America will never be great until we get this crisis figured out. I don't... I don't, what do people, if anyone listens and lives in Florida, what do you do about the tap water situation? Do you just not drink it? Or do you just dehydrate? That's why everyone in Florida is so damn crazy. I guarantee you, you, you look at the toxicology reports for all these crazy Floridians that do crazy shit and then die and kill themselves. Driving, I don't know, Brinks trucks down highways the wrong direction. Different, different Florida type stuff. 
I guarantee you, you do a toxicology report and you will find, you will find literally ExxonMobil to be operating inside of their red blood cells because it's, it's, it's just not good for you to drink jet fuel. And I don't know if you know that, and I don't know if you've heard that, and I don't know if that's breaking news for a lot of you. Subscribe on YouTube, rate and review the show, support the Patreon or the PayPal, please, and we appreciate it. And we're going to keep growing, man. Great day.